Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me remind you what Jesus is doing in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching us what a righteousness looks like that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And while their lives looked religious... Jesus is showing us what looks religious isn't necessarily real righteousness. Real righteousness, true righteousness, cares about both the external, the behavior-based morality, as well as the internal heart-level virtue. And Jesus wants the outside of our life to match the inside of our life. And that's a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just external, it's internal as well. And so to call us to this kind of righteousness, Jesus is taking us through six antitheses, six contrasts between how the religious leaders taught God's law in his day versus Jesus' own authoritative interpretation of it. Six antitheses, six contrasts, and this week we come to number five. Now, to set up this week's study, and, and next week's also, I want you to listen to what John Stott writes in his Excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The final two antitheses bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is both most admired and most resented, namely the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil and our enemies. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. So today we begin scaling the summit of the sermon. We begin reaching for its highest peaks. And while there's still a lot more Jesus has to teach us in this sermon, nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater, nowhere is the distinctness of Christ's followers followers more clearly marked out, and nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling than in this passage we are studying this week and next week. So I want to read our passage together, and then I want to pray for the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Please look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word now. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, you once said over your son, Jesus, you said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we want to do that today, Lord. We want to listen to your son, 
in this passage, his words. We want to hear him. We want to understand him. We want to do what Jesus calls us to do. So we ask for your help in this today, God. This is a hard word. So we pray, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. And Lord, give us hearts of humility to receive and obey. Pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. Help me to preach your word in truth and help this congregation to receive it by faith. Together we ask all this in the holy name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, I have five points for you today. We're going to jump right in because we have a lot to get through. Five points. We're going to look at the statement of the law. We're going to look at its meaning. We're going to look at its application. Then we're going to consider a couple mistakes that are made in trying to think through this passage. And then finally, we're going to talk about how we get the motivation to obey it. So we begin point number one, the law. The law. If you look again with me at verse 38, we see Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's quoting an Old Testament law here. It's one that's used at least three times in the Old Testament. Now, the first is in Exodus 21, 23 through 25. Moses writes, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Then in Leviticus 24, 19 and 20, Moses writes, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then finally, Deuteronomy 19.21, Moses writes, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, at first... This may sound a little barbaric. I'm like, really? An eye for an eye? A tooth for a Burn for burn? Wound for wound? It sounds like a violent way to live. But actually, this was a law designed to protect, and it protected in at least two ways. First, it protected a perpetrator from excessive retribution. So think about it. If someone hits you, what's your natural instinct? to hit him back. But do you just want to hit him back or do you want to hit him back harder? Okay, y'all heard my sermon last week about telling the truth, right? Because y'all are looking at me like, oh, we don't do that. No, you do. You want to hit him and you want to hit him harder, right? That's our natural instinct. And uh, it's to hit him back. And so this was a law that said the punishment must fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this, per this protected per uh, pep perpetrators, there it is, protected perpetrators, from excessive punishment. That's a lot of P's. Protected perpetrators from excessive punishment. Woo, I just need one more P in there and that would have been perfect. Oh, <laughs> I just did that right on the spot. You see how that just comes to preachers like that? Second way it protected, the second way it protected is it protected society from vigilante justice. So this was actually, these laws we read, they were actually a legal formula given to judges in, the, uh, in, in Israel. Uh, if you looked at these passages in context, you see the judges were summoned there to learn the law. This is how they were to ex exact the justice on those who committed crimes. And this was to create a just society. So you can imagine it like this. Let's say that a horrible crime happens. Where, you know, a guy from one tribe, we'll make this one tribe, rapes a woman from another tribe. 
And so what happens is, would happen, is that her brothers then want to exact vengeance, and so they go and they kill the man. Well, then his family wants to exact vengeance, and so they go and slaughter all her brothers. Well, then that family rises in arms and attacks this family and their tribe, and it becomes a tribal war, and violent chaos ensues. A feud. Against this, God established this legal code. No, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to be administered by judges as a way of maintaining order and a just society. The punishment must be in proportion to the crime. In legal terms, it's known by its Latin name, lex talionis, or law of retribution. And this law gives you the right to take someone to court, but does not give you the right to seek personal revenge. And so even to this day, this remains a key facet of our own justice system. Lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So that's, that's point one, that's the law. Number two then, point number two, the meaning, the meaning of the law. In Jesus' day, this, what had happened was this legal right that was supposed to be used in a judicial context, this legal right had been turned into a personal right a right for retaliation. It was, it was used in the opposite way. It was supposed to protect from this, but it was used to justify this. I, I can seek revenge. I can seek retaliation. After all, the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So it began to be used for personal vendettas. John Stott explains, the scribes and Pharisees evidently extended this principle of just retribution from the law courts where it belongs to the realm of personal relationships where it does not belong. So the law was dragged out of the courtroom and into the court of relationship, where it became prescriptive instead of restrictive. Instead of protecting against vedettas, it encouraged them. And instead of duly appointed judges objectively looking at the situation and determining a just sentence, it became the court of me, myself, and I doling out judgments as I best see fit. This is what they did back then and this is what we still do now. Have you ever been driving through town, minding your own business, when some person behind you starts riding up on your tail, trying to get you to go a little faster? I have. And what I have done before, I'm not recommending, is I've just purposely slowed down. <laughs> Teach this jerk a lesson. But that's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Have you ever been on a call, maybe with a customer service agent, with your cell phone, or your cable company, or your internet? Lovely people to talk to for a few hours of your day, for a few days, and they get rude, and you start getting a little testy back. Kids, to return to Mr. Seth's lesson, you ever hit your brother or sister because they hit you? Or have you ever called them a name because they called you a name? Adults and young adults, is there someone in your life that you're not talking to or you won't call because they're not talking to you or they haven't called you? 
an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Parents, do you ever yell at your kids because they're yelling at you? Don't raise your voice at me! <laughs> Children aren't allowed to rat out their parents either. <laughs> we should bring kids to community groups sometime <laughs> for like a night of testimony with the kids. <laughs> That'll get us humble real fast. I'm gonna think about that. Married couples, have you ever refused to apologize to your spouse because they haven't apologized to you yet? After all, they started it. At work, do you have a coworker or a boss who gets under your skin and so you look for opportunities to get under theirs? You see, a law that was intended by God to protect against personal vendettas is used by us, just like it was used by them, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, to defend our personal vendettas. A principle of judicial retribution is used as an excuse to do the very thing it was intended to abolish. And so in reply to all this, Jesus does not abolish lex talionis. He's not saying do away with this just principle in the courtrooms. He doesn't do away with the principle of justice. Rather, he teaches its place is in the courtroom, not in your relationships. Here's what Jesus is teaching us here. here here's how I'd put it for you. Our relationships, even with people who have wronged us, are based on love, not on justice. Our relationships with other people, even the people who have wronged us, are based on love, not on justice. Our duty to those who wrong us is not retaliation, but is accepting the injustice without revenge. Verse 39, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. To resist means to withstand, to oppose, to set yourself against. And Jesus is saying, don't do that to people, even those who wrong you. Now again, Jesus is talking personally, in a personal relationship, not judicially, and we'll, we'll explore all that here in a little while, but he's saying in your relationships, don't set yourself against someone who wrongs you. Don't retaliate. Now, most of you, many of you, I except have seen the all-time classic movie, The Princess Bride? My name is Nogamataya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. My name is Inigo, what's his name? <laughs> Inigo Montoya. Lost my own joke. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He says it over and over again. It's a great clip in the movie, right? It's a funny joke. He's going after the six-fingered man who killed his father. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my, he says, stop saying that. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, you can, he kills the six-fingered man. And we're all meant to cheer for him. He finally did it. He avenged his father's death. He restored his family's honor. We cheer him in the movie, but it's actually the opposite way Jesus taught us to live. To live your personal life by the code of an eye for an eye, personal vengeance, retaliation. Instead, what Jesus is teaching us is in interpersonal relationships, his disciples surrender their rights. 
we take the form of a servant, just like Jesus, even to our enemies. We don't make our rights the basis of our relationships with others. Instead, we offer up our rights. We sacrifice them in love. Jesus is calling us to a radical selflessness. That's the meaning. Number three, then, the application. The application. Jesus gives us four illustrations to help us think through how to apply this. Slapping, suing, forcing, begging. Four illustrations to help us think through how we apply this into our lives. So, illustration number one, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Look with me at the second half of verse 39. Jesus says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, notice here Jesus specifies the right cheek. That's important, okay? Because most people are right-handed, right? So, if you were standing in front of me and I slapped you with my right hand... In fact, can I get a volunteer? <laughs> I love that some of you raised your hand. All oh, you children, bless you. Um, no volunteers needed. If, let's just use our imagination. If I slapped you with my right hand with my hand open, I'm going to hit your left cheek, right? Because you're facing me. So what he's talking about here is you getting backhanded, okay? Which is, is insulting in our day. It adds insult to injury, but was even more insulting in their day in an honor code, honor system like they had. Now, this was, in, this was hugely insulting, so much so you could sue someone over this. And penalties ranged, get this, from a small fine to the person having their ear chopped off. That's just pretty significant, it, depending on how severely you embarrass someone. Maybe if you insult me in, in private, then it's a little less insulting. If you insult me in front of a crowd, then there's a greater penalty for it. The point is, you had the ability, you had the right to sue them over the insult, but instead, Jesus says, you're to offer them the other cheek. I mean, think about this just on an instinctual level again. If someone hits you, we've already said this, your instinct is to respond with hitting them back. But Jesus says, if there's gonna be a second blow, my disciples don't throw it, they take it. We surrender the right, not to self-defense, we'll talk about that in a bit, but we surrender the right to reestablish with our own hands, to reestablish our dignity. Instead we say, let the insults come. I won't retaliate, I won't avenge myself. I won't hold it against them even. I will respond graciously and sacrificially. I surrender my right. Illustration number two then. Illustration number two. Give away your cloak. Give away your cloak. Look with me at verse 40. Jesus says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So back in Jesus' day, it was possible to take someone to court and literally sue them for the shirt off their back. You could do that. The tunic that he's talking about was your normal 
outfit, your normal suit of clothing, it's whatever you all are wearing today. It was just your normal outfit, and people would have multiple tunics. And you could sue people for that. But your cloak was your outer garment, it kept you warm, and for a lot of people, it was also their blanket. Uh, especially if you were poor, uh, this was what you slept in and kept you warm. And in fact, this cloak, this outer garment, was legally protected uh, in Israel's code. So Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 24 says, you can't sue people for their cloak because it could be their blanket. It may be essential to their living. And so you can't sue them for it. And Jesus says, yeah, but you need to be willing to surrender your legal rights. Now this takes some nuance. Jesus is not calling us to surrender all our legal rights all the time, and we're gonna talk about more about that in a minute too. But he is clearly calling us to be willing to surrender our legal rights when we can. At pain to ourselves. So as an example of maybe a modern application of this, I know someone who employed a lawn treatment company. They had to come out treat their lawn one year, but he did not call them to come back a second year. Nevertheless, that company came back the second year without being asked. And they treated the guy's lawn and gave him a bill. And so the guy calls him up and says, you know, hey, like I didn't ask you guys to come back to do this. Like, and so he's trying to work that all out with them. And in the midst of all that, he's actually at home and a guy shows up from the company and starts treating the lawn again. So he's running outside, whoa, no, no, stop, 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 stop. You know, sends the guy packing. Calls the company, I did not order these lawn treatments. What do they do? They send him a bill for a second lawn treatment. And even though he chased the guy off his lawn before he finished, they billed him for a whole treatment. So he's got two bills. One, neither he ordered, and one he didn't even get the whole treatment for. So the guy, my friend, he's furious. This is an injustice. True treatments I didn't order that I'm getting billed for. And so for months, he battled this company over paying the bill. They kept insisting, the work's been done. He kept insisting, I didn't hire you. Until one day, he realized, he was studying this passage, and he realized his heart attitude was, I have rights here. I will not be defrauded. And he realized his rights had become an idol to him. And so for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his witness and for the sake of his own soul, he needed to demolish that idol. And so he paid the bill in full for both treatments. He gave them his tunic and his cloak. Did he have to? No. But he chose to surrender his rights. D.A. Carson summarizes this teaching like this. Even those things which we regard as our rights by law we must be prepared to abandon. Illustration number three. Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Look with me at verse 41. Paul says, or I mean, Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, in Jesus' day, Israel was occupied by Rome. And a Roman soldier had a legal and a political right to draft uh, Israeli citizens, Jewish citizens, uh, to carry his luggage for him or his supplies for him uh, for about a mile. And this is kind of what happens with, with Simon of Cyrene, where the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And this was humiliating to the Jews. I mean, it's humiliating to anybody. 
It was humiliating to Jews because it reminded them of their bondage in Egypt. And they hated that. And, and it was grossly abused by the Romans. It was grossly abused. And so they hated it all the more. They felt like they were so taken advantage of and so politically imposed upon. In fact, it was so badly hated that it led to them creating, you know, to the Jews starting to have like assassinations of Romans in the 60s. This is one of the big things that led to it, which led to the, the Romans destroying the temple in the 70s. So they hated this so much. And yet Jesus says, those who follow me surrender our rights and are willing to give generously even to those who would take advantage of us. Even to those who would politically impose upon us. (laughs) Does this sound relevant to our day? Oh my goodness. We should go above and beyond the call of duty even when it entails an unjust imposition on our time, our resources, or our person. Commenting on this passage, T.W. Mason said, the first mile renders to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. The second mile, by meeting oppression with kindness, renders to God the things that are God's. So in our day, Let's say this can begin, let's begin more personally. This might begin with that person calling you who's always calling you for help. And you are so tired of them imposing upon you. But because of this, you don't hit ignore. You pick up the phone and you see what they need. You go with them the extra mile. Or if your boss assigns you extra work, or maybe he even assigns you someone else's work. This is not even my job, this is so-and-so's apartment. Instead, you receive it willingly and even offer, is there anything else I can do to help? Everything's about to change with the masks, right, in our state. And there's a lot of things that we have to navigate and try to figure out how, to, how we're gonna navigate that. And some of you are not comfortable wearing masks, don't like doing it. But some establishments are gonna ask you to continue to do so. I think this passage, I think this passage may tell you, you may feel imposed upon, but love compels you not to resist the evil one, but to go, Go ahead and go the extra mile in serving even those who are your enemy. And for others of you, it may call you to go the extra mile in your relationships by not judging those who disagree with you. If you see people not wearing a mask and somewhere where their mask is requested, going the extra mile in love by not judging. See, all this... All of this is what it means to live by grace and not by the letter of the law. It's not just what you have to do, but it's what God enables you to do to serve other people. You lay down your rights and become a servant even when you're imposed upon. Illustration number four then. Give generously to those in need. Give generously to those in need. Look with me at verse 42. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
In other words, Jesus' disciples surrender their right to keep what's theirs when confronted with genuine need. I say genuine need because neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament requires Christians to financially support the slothful, the lazy, or those who waste their resources irresponsibly. Uh, For instance, Proverbs 11, verse 15 warns us, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. And Paul, the apostle, goes even clearer when in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 he writes, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Passages like these mean Jesus is not calling us to indiscriminately give away all our money here, but he was teaching that his disciples surrender their rights to keep what is theirs entrusted by God for them to steward when confronted with real need, with genuine need. True need makes a claim on the money that we are called to steward. And it doesn't matter if that need is with a friend, a family member, or with an enemy. We don't resist the one who is evil. And we don't make those who live in legitimate need live by some kind of code of an eye for an eye. You know, you do this and then I'll help you. You do this and then I'll serve you. Instead, we give generously to help them in their need. So in summary, these illustrations help us to see how Jesus' disciples don't make their rights the basis of their relationships with others. Instead, we offer up our rights, we surrender them, and love others selflessly, even those who do us harm. Now, having said all that, there are yet two mistakes we commonly make in applying these verses. Two mistakes we make around this, so I want to look at those with you next. Point number four, the mistakes, the mistakes. The first mistake is to read this passage, and I've been alluding to this, is to read this passage so literally that we then neglect the rest of the teachings of Scripture. It's like you read this passage with blinders on. And this is a mistake because if this is all we had, this passage was all we had on these issues, it would lead us to to societal chaos. Uh, For instance, on a societal level, some have insisted that Jesus is teaching extreme pacifism, pacifism here. So most famously, uh, this was the text Leo Tolstoy was meditating on before he wrote his manifestos about abolishing armies and police forces and letting the good in the heart of man reign. You know, if only there was good in the heart of man to let reign. (laughs) Uh, Alas, not so. This was also the text that made Mahatma Gandhi respect Jesus. He he built his nonviolence philosophy in part on Jesus' teaching here because he read this with blinders on instead of looking at the rest of the scripture. So this passage impacts a lot of people's thinking on nonviolence, on war, on pacifism, on the use of force by police, and on capital punishment. Resist not the evil one. Turn the other cheek. And yet, as I've been saying, Jesus isn't abolishing the justice principle, lex talionis. He's not abolishing that. These are, those are issues of justice, and they need to be addressed by passages that are addressing justice in society, different than this one, which is addressing relationships. So for justice in society, we look at passages like Romans 13. This says, the state does not bear the sword in vain. It doesn't bear it in vain because it's the use of force that the Apostle Paul says is a terror to bad conduct. So there are passages that speak to societal justice and the use of force, but that's not Matthew 5. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us that justice is not the basis of our personal relationships. Love is. Or on a more personal level. You know, some people go to this passage and say, 
well, maybe you can't defend yourself. You're not to resist the evil one. If someone attacks you, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. So there's no self-defense. Well, no, again, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about how we govern our relationships in love. He's not teaching about if you are attacked violently, uh, maliciously. There are other passages that speak to that, a number of them. One we could look at is Luke 22 which is 36 through 38. This is Jesus speaking. He's sending his disciples out on a mission. And he says to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So Jesus is, is saying here, listen, I'm not, I'm not creating an army. I'm not saying everybody needs to carry a sword that's my disciples. I, I'm not bringing a military um, you know, campaign here. But you got a couple swords in the group, that's enough because you just need them for self-defense. It was a common practice in Jesus' day was to carry a sword when you're traveling around in case you had burglars coming after you. Jesus affirms that. He says, that's enough, that's okay. And all the gun-toting members of Covenant Grace Church said, amen. <laughs> I knew you were out there. <laughs> But you see why it's a mistake to read Matthew 5 so literally that you neglect the rest of the teachings of scriptures. Scripture has to interpret scripture. And we could go on and give other examples about this passage is not teaching you that you can't take things to, to court or you can't go to the police or something. You just got to, no. Uh, again, Romans 13 is established to make sure that as a check on lawlessness, the government's created to be a check on, on lawlessness. Now, Paul appealed to his rights as a citizen at time. Paul appealed to Caesar for a trial to be held in Rome. And so Matthew 5 is, is not teaching us about how to enact justice on a societal level, but about how love needs to order our relationships uh, with one another. Uh, some people have gone so far, this is just a humorous aside, it may not make much of a point, but Martin Luther tells this funny, the reformer tells this funny story uh, about how he knew this crazy saint once who on the basis of this text, one is not to resist the evil one, this crazy saint would let the, this is how Luther put it, he let the lice nibble at him. In other words, you know, he wouldn't even stop the lice from attacking him because he took this so literally. That's just the kind of literal nonsense we have to like, if there are lice in your life, please get rid of them, okay? <laughs> Don't appeal to this passage for anything that's crazy, right? Like, let's not be so literalistic that we do not let scripture interpret scripture. Again, Stott says that Jesus is not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us from taking the law into our own hands. All right, so one mistake, we read it too literally. Second mistake though, I tried to show like, we have to be nuanced in some of this because that has to happen. But listen, the second mistake we, we make here is that we so guard and so nuance this passage and we make so many caveats and exceptions and excuses that we don't let this passage really hit us with the radical force that it is intended to. Jesus' word here is hard. Think about the four illustrations he uses. You have someone who wants to insult you, injure you, hurt you, harass you, take from you, and you're not to retaliate. You're not to resist the one who is evil. 
So kids, Jesus is saying, if your brother or sister takes your toy from you, you cannot take it back, you can't yank it back from them. And if they call you a name, you can't call one back. And if they push you down, you can't climb up on the top bunk and like elbow them from the top, you know, like you can't do it. It may feel like the right thing to do, but it's not love. And love governs our relationships. You can go get mom and dad for help, by the way, if you need it, but you can't personally retaliate. Young adults, this passage means that if someone leaves a mean comment on one of your you know, social media posts, you don't just comment back, putting them in their place or restoring your dignity, defending yourself. You let it ride. You love them instead. You overlook the offense. If someone's stealing the glory on the field or on the stage, you don't become embittered against them. You go and shake their hand. You give them honor. Married couples. <laughs> this is where this passage is gonna hit us most, in our marriages. Your spouse hurts you? What do you do on an ungodly day? Probably one of two things. You probably, some of you escalate. You get louder. You get angrier. You get hotter. You start listing off, well, you never do this, and you don't respect me, and you haven't listened to this, and I've been asking you, and you just, you let it all out. Others of you, you get frosty quiet. I know that one. <laughs> I laugh, but really, it's, it's to my shame. Uh, by way of confession, I went to bed angry at Jenny twice this past week. Disobeyed scripture. Got angry at her, so I shut her down, I shut her out. Because this is what we do. We find the power that we have and we use it to get back at people. But Jesus calls us, turn the other cheek. Give away your cloak. Go the extra mile. Give away freely. He calls us to surrender our rights and love others, even our enemies like he has loved us. So this leads us to point number five then. Point number five, the motive. The motive. The motive. We'll close with this point. This is a hard word. It's a demanding word. Uh, it takes more of us than we actually have in us. So how can we possibly obey it? Where can we find the motive and the power? Where can we find the motivating power to surrender our rights so fully and love so freely? I mean, in one sense, it ought to be, well, Jesus just commanded it. He's Lord of my life, and he told me to do it, so I should do it, right? Like, I'm laying in bed, mad at Jenny. I know I should not be. I should not go to sleep. Why? Jesus says, get back in there and love her. Now, if you're like me, if you can get that far in your thinking, sometimes getting that far is hard, but if I can get that far, even there, I'm just, I just feel weird. I don't have
have it in me to do it. I'm just angry or hurt or upset. So what do I do? How? And some wrongs are so much worse than that. Some sufferings are so much harder to bear. So how do we do it? Well, what Jesus commanded, he also demonstrated. He also did for us. And it's in meditating on Jesus' example and his love for us that we actually find the power to do this. So let me show that to you, okay? Let me give you this, this quote from John Stott, helpful counsel on this point, lengthy quote, well worth it. I'll lay out the principle he gives you and then I'll show you how I put it into practice. He says, and there's a couple of typos here, I'm really sorry about that, but, but, but follow along. He says, this is the standard which Jesus asked and it is the standard which he himself fulfilled. It had been written of him in the Old Testament scripture. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 50 verse six. And the first the Jewish police spat on him, blindfolded him and struck him in the face. And then the Roman soldiers followed suit. They crowned him with thorns, clothed him in the imperial purple, invested him with the scepter of reed, jeered him, hail king of the Jews. Bowed before him, marked homage upon him, spat in his face then, and struck him with their hands, Mark 14 and Mark 15. And yet Jesus, with the infinite dignity of self-control in love, held his peace. Let me just underline that phrase. With the infinite dignity of self-control in love, held his peace. He demonstrated his total refusal to retaliate by allowing them to continue their cruel mockery until they had finished. So before we become too eager to evade the challenge of Jesus' teaching and, beha and behavior as mere unpractical idealism, we need to remember that Jesus called his disciples to it, to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer termed a visible participation in his cross. This is how the Apostle Peter put it. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted, to himself, or trusted himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2. Friends, the key to applying this is to reflect on Jesus' suffering for you. Jesus suffered for you. He was reviled and reviled not in return for you. Jesus was threatened and suffered and yet he threatened not in return for you, both to save you and to send you out to do likewise. The motivating power is all in Jesus. And so what we have to do is we have, to, we have to meditate on the things of Christ. We have to set our mind on things above so that a love for Jesus becomes bigger in our heart than the love for ourselves. And appreciation for how Jesus has suffered for me has to be bigger in my heart than how I am suffering by others' hands. And a desire to be like this beautiful Jesus who with the infinite dignity of self-control and love held his peace. A desire to be like that has to be a bigger desire in my heart than a desire to exact revenge. 
You see, this is what we mean when we say you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. When I'm lying in bed, mad at my wife, I have to turn my thoughts back to Jesus and I have to start telling myself that truth again. Jesus suffered so many wrongs that were my fault. And until those wrongs that he suffered become bigger than the the wrongs that I am suffering, until I fill that out in my mind, in my heart, I don't have the power to deal with the wrongs in my life. But when I see my wrongs are bigger and Jesus' sacrifice is greater, then I'm compelled by his love for me to go and love even my enemy likewise. Because I know that when I was an enemy of Jesus, he suffered for me and won me through his love. And maybe I can go love my enemy if I love them likewise. Friends, no one was ever won to Jesus No one was ever won to Jesus by us insisting on our rights. They're won to Jesus when we lay down our rights and love and serve them selflessly. The power is all in Jesus. In his example, and even more deeply, in his love for us, that he surrendered his rights for our sake. So covenant of grace, with the help of God, let us be a church that's so enthralled with the love of Christ that we are known as a church that gladly serves even our enemies. Compelled by love, we surrender our rights willingly, gladly, And let that be the salt of the earth and the light of the world for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray over this hard word. God, you have planted it into our hearts today, but now we need to let it work itself out and bear fruit in our lives. So Lord, I pray for everyone here, God, I pray, and everyone watching and listening, I pray, Lord, that you would bless the reception of this word by faith. I pray that you would give everyone humility to let you, Holy Spirit, search our hearts and find if there be any wicked way in us. God, protect us from a defensiveness, even against you, that says, you know what, I'm beyond inspection here. Instead, help us to lay down our lives and our hearts and our pride and say, Lord, come and search me because my greatest prayer is that I be changed for your glory. God, we pray that you would bless us, Lord, as a congregation. The Lord is known for our love, love for one another, but also a compelling love for our enemies. And God, would you use that to transform our community and our country, and the world. Win souls, Jesus, by the way this congregation loves. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.